Welcome everybody, my name is Paul Jay and I'm with the Real News Network. I should let you know we're Real News are filming this. If anyone doesn't want to be filmed, um, I, you're going to have to put your hand over your face or something. Uh, we'll get right into it. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu recently appointed, as I'm sure most people know, Avigdor Lieberman as defense, as his defense minister. Um, he seemed very unconcerned how this might affect American public opinion or how it might affect a $10 billion weapons package that's being negotiated. And why should he be concerned? The American media is the one that delivers this news to the American people and continues the narrative that Israel is the victim in all of this, so of course they need $10 billion of weapons. It is highly likely that either Secretary Clinton or Donald Trump is going to be the next president. We know that Senator Clinton's record, I'm sorry, Secretary Clinton's record has been very close to APAC and very much an ally in terms of their objectives. Donald Trump was recently endorsed by Sheldon Adelson. It's clear he has now shown exactly what type of negotiation he plans around the Middle East because uh, he has to fund his election campaign and we will expect similar policies from him as regards the Middle East. Uh, the point here is that it's an extremely dangerous moment for the Palestinian people. The uh, need for a South African style broad front solidarity movement against Israeli occupation and support of the Palestinian people is even more urgent. So that's what I hope we end up discussing today, how to develop that broad front so we leave here with something to do about it. But in order to get into that conversation, first some background from our two guests who are eminently qualified to give us such background. First of all, next to me, Norman Finkelstein. He's one of the foremost scholars of Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's written about a dozen books on many topics, including U.S. foreign policy towards Israel, the use and abuse of the history of the Holocaust, and Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence. His controversial legacy as an academic was made into an award-winning documentary film, American Radical, The Trials of Norman Finkelstein. His latest book is Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assault on Gaza. Tariq Ali, on my right, is a writer and filmmaker. He's written more than two dozen books on world history and politics and several novels, translated into over a dozen languages, as well as scripts for the stage and screen. He's editor of New Left Review and contributes to The Guardian, Counterpunch, The London Review of Books. His latest book is The Extreme Center, The Extreme Center, A Warning. And thank you and help me welcome them. So my first question is uh, for Tariq and the format's going to be, uh, I'm going to ask some questions, our guests are going to give long answers, I hope, and, uh, and then there will be some time at the end for some Q&A from the audience. Uh, Tarek, uh, it was a few weeks ago an Israeli general compared Israeli, the fascization of Israeli society to 1930s Nazi Germany. Uh, talk about that process. Well, uh, it's good that it came from the mouth of an Israeli general, because if any of us had said it, we'd have been 
We'd have been accused of being anti-Semitic or self-hating Jews or whatever other names they call those who criticize uh, Israel rationally. The fact that it was the general, the deputy commander-in-chief of the Israeli Defense Force who said it did create a certain propaganda crisis for them. He was denounced by Netanyahu himself, but I think the words got home. People began to think uh, that the situation in Israel is getting worse and worse. And this came after a number of events in Israel. The arrest of a soldier for killing a Palestinian, mass mobilizations in favor of that soldier, support for that soldier from many elements within Likud and the extreme right in Israeli politics, the fact that within Israel itself the Palestinians are no longer regarded by a vast majority, not just by a small extremist minority, but by a large majority of the population as something not worth bothering about. And it's this that is worrying certain people inside the Israeli establishment itself. I don't know how many of you saw a documentary some years ago called The Gatekeepers, which was statements by people out of power when it's much easier to say these things about how every single Israeli policy in relation to the Palestinians had been a disaster or had failed and how they had done bad things. This is a serving general inside the Israeli army who is saying this, and it's already, I think, partially. Netanyahu wanted to punish him by openly speculating that he was going to appoint Lieberman defense minister, i.e. putting this extremely nutty semi-fascist in charge of the Israeli defense force, and the serving defense minister has now resigned saying that this is unacceptable. These are all people inside Likud or on its uh, fringes. So what this indicates to me is, you know, that it's not just that the occupation of Palestine has been horrific for the Palestinian people, but we now have very clear evidence that the occupation of Palestinian lands by the Israeli establishment and by all political parties in power since 1948 is proving to be extremely bad for a majority of Israelis as well, even though they don't seem to recognize the fact just yet. But some of the more intelligent elements inside the Israeli establishment do recognize it and feel unless some stop is put to this, it's going to end badly. Uh, Norman, is it this volume okay? Uh, Avigador, Avigador Lieberman is someone who actually proposed ethnic cleansings, of, cleansing of Palestinians from Israel. He actually redrew the map and was taking Pal Palestinian villages and areas and putting them into occupied territories, taking back land. It was straightforward ethnic cleansing. Um, why do you think it is that Netanyahu is so confident of his position that the appointment of Lieberman isn't going to affect the arms deal and, and generally affect 
his, uh, you know, the positioning right now in, in terms of the elections? I think one has to begin with the fact that uh, coming next year, we'll be hitting the 50th anniversary of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, and West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. That means, roughly speaking, two, two and a half generations of Israelis have lived with and not just lived with, but been active participations in the occupation. And the bottom line is, Israel is a small place. Its population now, I saw the most recent statistic, is about 8.3 million people, which is roughly the size of New York. And the population under occupation is about 4 million people. In order to occupy such a large number of people, relatively speaking, to your own population, even with the Palestinian Authority, it still requires virtually, if not literally, aside from those who are uh, allowed to skip army service for religious reasons, it's virtually every single Israeli at this point has been an active participation in a quite brutal occupation. Uh, if you look at the histories now written, even the torture of Palestinians, the use of torture against Palestinian detainees, it begins right after the <coughs> occupation begins. It then reaches a peak during the first intifada when Human Rights Watch estimated that tens of thousands of Palestinian detainees were tortured or suffered ill treatment. And leaving aside the torture, the demolition of homes, which was quite pervasive up until a Supreme Court decision, which to some extent diminished it, the point is that a large part of Israeli society has been and had to be, given the roles they were playing, had to be brutalized and to some extent, no, to a large extent, inured to the kinds of brutality they were visiting on the Palestinian population. If you don't understand that and you detach Israeli society from what goes on at the leadership level, then you really don't, I think, understand what's going on. Because it's a whole society with a certain small number of exceptions. And even the exceptions will emphasize that they are exceptions. It's a whole society that's just gone over the cliff. If you want to understand Israeli society, the easiest way to grasp it is to look at the documentaries of our own civil rights movement and look at the folks, the white folks in the American South. 
It was, it's that kind of brutalization that's occurred across Israeli society. And that's unusual. Now, it's no doubt true the United States as a state, as a government, it engages in mass atrocities and brutalities across the planet. But it's a relatively small number of Americans who are actual participants in those acts. That's not true in Israel. Even if you take a figure who's very popular in the United States, he's a kind of strange version of what we used to call a court Jew, namely Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, he plays this kind of strange court Jew, tough Jew role. Uh, never quite sure, he never quite sure knows what role to play in order to get his cachet into the White House. But if you take a person like Jeffrey Goldberg, who's a mainstream American figure, and in the media he's looked upon as some sort of representative of American Jewry at its proudest moment. If you read his memoir, um, Prisoners, he was a prison guard, and he was part of the conveyor belt of torture. He was freely admitting to it. He would bring prisoners to what was called the refrigerator. Uh, it's, it's the size of a refrigerator where they put people in for a couple of days. Uh, you can use your imagination. Even people like Jeffrey Goldberg, who was a volunteer from the United States, he himself became part of the conveyor belt. And so it's a whole society, including Jeffrey Goldberg as an example, including American Jews who went over, who brutalized and then became inured to that brutality. And so for Israelis, doesn't really make much difference what maniac happens to be in power. If you look at all of the Israeli assaults on Gaza during Defensive Shield in 2002 in the West Bank, in Lebanon, if you look at the public opinion polls, in every single case, at least 92%, and sometimes as high as 95% of the Israeli population supported those assaults. Basically, they were just massacres. There was, except for the case of Lebanon, there was no war to speak of. And that enjoyed overwhelming support. Now, if you look in the last couple of days, who are the people in Israeli society who are, quote unquote, sounding the warning, sounding the warning about the potential fascistization of Israeli society? Let's leave aside for a moment the deputy commander whose background I'm not familiar with. The most prominent person right now is the ex-defense minister, uh, Ya'alom. Now, he quit, he said, because of disturbing tendencies in Israeli society, doesn't want to be part of them. Who was Ya'alon? Ya'alon was the defense minister during Operation Protective Edge. Now, 
If you read Aluf Ben, who's the senior military correspondent for Haaretz, he says, why was Ya'alon shook up? What shook him up? He said, in 2015, when the Duma family child, the one-year-old, was torched, he was very upset. And then the turning point for him was the killing of the wounded Palestinian by the Israeli uh, soldier. What happened during Protective Edge? 550 children were killed, not one. If you read the descriptions, if you read the descriptions in like the UN report on Gaza, which was a dreadful report, it was presided over by a New York State judge, Mary McGowan Davis, you can fill in the rest, you can figure it out. Um, the kids, their body parts were flung everywhere. Children, they have an arm on one roof, an arm on another roof, torsos which couldn't be identified. 19,000 homes, 19,000 homes were destroyed. But let's be clear, it wasn't destruction as in quote-unquote collateral damage. If you read the Breaking the Silence testimonies, they talk about they went into areas, marked off the areas, systematically, systematically laid waste, raised the homes. Now, you know here, like myself, if your computer overloads, or even in my case last night, my keyboard wasn't working. I enter into a panic. I call up everyone I know in the earliest hours of the morning. We have a crisis. There's a crisis. My keyboard doesn't work. But then, Gaza consists 80% of refugees and children and descendants of refugees. Over 50%, over 50% are children. And now you have this army of Israeli citizens. It's like everyone in this room at a slightly younger age. Everyone in this room, these are ordinary people. Do you know what it means to destroy someone's home? You go into the bedroom, you see the kids play things, you go into the closets, the drawers. You know what it takes, the kind of mentality it requires to do that? And that explains why Israel has, in my opinion, has gone over the cliff. The idea that Ya'alon would be traumatized by the killing of one kid or even take the next one who's traumatized. We read today, Ahud Barak is traumatized. He thinks there are ugly tendencies at play. Ahud Barak, it's already forgotten. This whole cycle, 
the whole cycle of the last 16 years, it began with him, with the fake claim that he made a big offer at Camp David, which was then endorsed by that monster who happens to be married to the other monster. <laughs> and actually, actually, it convinced a lot of Israelis. I know many Israelis who were completely convinced that a great offer was given them, the Palestinians. They turned it down. There's no one to negotiate with. What was the next thing Ehud Barak did? On September 29, 2000, the Second Intifada began. He was the one that gave the order, it has to be mercilessly crushed immediately. For those whose memories go back before the suicide bombers, the suicide bombing didn't begin until March 2nd, 2001. The actual first intifada, it began on September 29th, 2000. Five months elapsed before that first suicide bombing. Who created that situation? It was Barack. Within three to four days, three to four days, one million, one million rounds of ammunition were fired at the Palestinians. As one Israeli put it, one for every Palestinian child. That was Barak. And it was because of him, the second intifada for those who remember for before the suicide bombings, because that's all we're told about. The first, the second intifada started out nonviolently. It was the same mass demonstrations as in the first intifada. But then with the brutality, the ratio was 20, Israel, 20 Palestinians killed for each, each Israeli killed in the first three weeks. It was just a bloodletting. So when I hear Barak and Yah alone are worried by this sudden appearance on Israeli society of fascism, you have to take it with a big boulder of salt. <laughs> On the other hand, but I'm going to stop here because uh, Paul said you can speak, answer at length. I was once told when I was uh, debating in Canada, they said the wrong thing to a Brooklyn Jew. They said, be aggressive. <laughs> I don't want to tell you what happened. <laughs> Okay, I, I was in, uh, in Beirut in 2012, and I interviewed a young girl, she was about 14, 15 years old, in a Palestinian refugee camp, and I asked her, what would you say to Israeli kids your own age? She said, I'd like to strangle them with, with my bare hands around their neck. And I said, why? And she said, because I saw on Israeli television when they were bombing Gaza, kids were writing their names on the bombs yes. about to be dropped. Whoa. 
And that mainstream Israeli TV showing this. So this hatred, this the the anger in these kids for what they've experienced, lived, and witnessed and seen does not seem right now to have a way to express itself in a way that's going to be liberating for the Palestinian people. So where are we at in terms of the response of Palestinians now? <clears throat> um, well, I think if we are brutally honest, we have to say that the Palestinian organizations, uh, especially the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which negotiated the Oslo Accords, uh, has participated and collaborated in the defeat that has been inflicted on the Palestinian people. They want you to hold the mic a little higher. I think, I think uh, this collaboration was absolutely vital uh, for the Israelis in order to do what they are now doing. And I think the debate and discussion that has now opened up, even within the PLO, is an indication that everyone now knows, there's no secret, not that they didn't know it before, that this is the way they were going. And for a long time it was difficult to say it. I mean, I've been saying it for 10, 15 years uh, in different parts of the world, including at conferences organized by Palestinians themselves. And in private, a lot of them would agree, you're right, but we can't say it in public. I said, you have to say it in public. It shouldn't be left to people like me to say it. You have to say it. Because saying it will be helpful and will not allow the people to get too demoralized. If no one opens their mouths from within the leadership or lower echelons or low rank, lower ranking cadres of that organization, we are sunk. And in fact, as we know, the scale of the collaboration was huge, of the money given to the Palestinian, so-called Palestinian Authority, which was Palestinian but which had no authority at all, because never was there a Palestinian Authority. From the beginning, the real authority was the IDF, and behind it, the Israeli government, and behind it, the White House and the State Department, i.e. the United States of America. So there was never any Palestinian authority. What they had was a budget, billions came in, a majority segment of this budget was spent on what? Security. Security, let's see what is meant by security. Defending the Palestinian people against the onslaughts of the IDF? No, perish the thought. The security they talked about was to keep their own people under control and to deal with rival factions of Palestinians in Gaza, etc. That's what the bulk of the money was spent on. Where did some of the rest of the money go? It went in enriching those who would organizing this so-called Palestinian Authority. Political leaders, including right at the very top, lower-level cadres, they were bought off 
and told, we've struggled enough, let's enjoy life for a bit. But you know, we're all in favor of enjoying life for a bit if your own people aren't living in such dire and desperate conditions. And this is what was completely ignored. And you know, I have a very dear friend, a Palestinian poet who lives in Cairo, who told me when I went to Ramallah, a close friend of mine, we had fought together in the old days, took me up the mountain and showed me his brand new villa, which must have cost God knows, you know, half a million dollars or the equivalent thereof. And he said, look, this is how I live now and I'm happy. And he said, I felt like slapping his face because not so far away were people who were living in really appalling conditions. And this money, which could have been used, which could have been used to aid every Palestinian family, to build schools, to build small clinics, etc., etc., was frittered away. And the Israelis knew what they were doing. They were buying off the top layers of Palestinian society within the PLO. And we have now reached a situation where I was at a conference in Spain, in Cordoba, a few weeks ago, sharing a platform with the Palestinian Minister for Finance and Economics, and everything I've said to you, I said to his face. And uh, he admitted, he said, yeah, perhaps we spent too much on security. <laughs> and I said, what about the two uh, billion bribe scandal? And he said, that's exaggerated. <laughs> no open denial. It's a huge tragedy that the leaders of a movement could be bought off and bought off so easily. So he then turned to me and said, well, what would you do? I said, for one thing, what I would do now really, because enough is enough, is say to the world at large, there is no authority, there is no Palestinian authority. We are going to uh, dump it. It doesn't exist. We are just Palestinians in this region which is occupied by Israel and dear world and dear people in the world, that's what we are. Are you going to help us? Please do. If not, we'll struggle on and live together and share each other's uh, uh, goods and money as long as we can because that is what is needed. And he said, well, there's a logic in what you say, but I said the logic, if it exists for you, has come too bloody late for the Palestinian people. They know what you've done. The Israelis do horrific things, as Norman has, has eloquently described and has been describing for years. But I said being defeated by your own leadership is psychologically and politically very damning. That is much more difficult to get over because you then say, what alternative do we have? Where are we going? So I, I say that as long as this is recognized, and they are beginning to recognize it, it's difficult not to, that they have lost the battle for a Palestinian state, that that Palestinian state which they dreamed of, even on the 67 frontiers, is not going to happen because the occupation settlements have just encroached too far into Palestinian territory. There is no Israeli government which is going to remove them. 
because it won't have the support of its own population to do so. The United States is indifferent, always has been indifferent to the fate of the Palestinians, and more so after the 67 war. So there's going to be no help from the so-called international community, by which is just a code word for referring to the United States. There's no such thing as an international community. So in this situation, far better that the Palestinians acknowledge of their situation and then see how to uh, uh, proceed uh, forward. The situation is grim. It's pointless prettifying it or finding hope in tiny things. Not that these tiny things are not important. The BDS campaign is important. It's important not because it will bring down the Israeli government. That is an illusion that it will bring down the Israeli government. The South African government was not brought down by sanctions. It was brought down by the defeat inflicted by the Cuban army on South Africa. But <clears throat> sanctions on their own are never decisive. I nonetheless support them. Why? Because it is an important way to project what is going on in the uh, uh, Israel-Palestine, the world of Israel and Palestine and in the world at large, and on that front it's been affected. The reason the Israeli government is so hostile to it is not that they feel threatened by the sanctions, but because it disgraces them. It shames them. Uh, they have to answer questions uh, about it. When campuses in the United States or parts of Europe stand up and say, we demand a boycott of Israel, it shames even the American government, which finds this horrifying, and European governments, which have done absolutely nothing to aid the Palestinians. So these movements, societal movements from below, are extremely important from that particular uh, uh, vantage point, and that's, that, that's why I was a, a signatory uh, uh, to them, to it from the uh, beginning, without any illusions, without any illusions, but understanding its importance. And this is why now there's a huge campaign. They've outlawed BDS in France, which, by the way, is the most pro-Israeli country in, in Europe today. And the appointment of uh, Mark Negev, a friend of Netanyahu's and formerly Netanyahu's press officer, who you probably saw complacent and unctuous on television screens defending the indefensible, is now the ambassador in London to see if he can persuade the conservative government to do what the French have done and make BDS activities illegal. And allied to this, comes a new campaign, which is not new, of course, in the United States, but is new in large parts of Europe, whereby the chief rabbi in Britain said there is no such thing as anti-Zionism that is not also anti-Semitism. Actually said this. And said that anti-Zionism, people who talk about anti-Zionism, are anti-Semitic. Of course, liberal Jews and the Jewish Voices for Peace, thankfully, there are many more of these still in uh, British society uh, than the other, came out very strongly denouncing this. 
So there is a debate going on. And you ask yourself, why is it that suddenly this campaign of anti-Semitism sparked off, got sparked off in Britain? That's because the Labour Party, uh, to its own horror and shock, has the membership has elected a leader who is very well known for being a defender of the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian movement. And, and it is this that has panicked them. So they're denouncing people in his circles, uh, etc. Sometimes Ken Livingston, the former mayor of London, says something which is three quarters accurate but not a hundred percent and says it in a temper without rationally arguing it. So they pounce on him. Or another member of parliament uh, who two years ago forwarded one of Norm's texts and satirical blogs, satire is fatal these days, satirical blogs uh, saying that all the Israeli Jews could, of course, come back and live in the United States if they want to, since many of them went from Brooklyn, it's, or whatever. <laughs> so this is so obviously a satirical blog, and she found it amusing and forwarded it. She's been accused of anti-Semitism, because she was foolish. Instead of saying, this is a blog by Norman Finkelstein, I forwarded, then they could deal with Norman directly. But instead, she panicked and apologized and went on her knees. They've still suspended her from the Labour Party. Because the worst thing to do in these situations is not to fight back. If you don't fight back, they carry on and on and on. So this is what's going on. And you know, the irony of the situation is that if you want to know the community in Europe which is really suffering, it is the Muslim communities. There is a huge wave of Islamophobia in many parts of Europe. I would say virtually all of Europe, which in its manifestations is not that different from the attacks that were made on Jewish people in the 20s and 30s and even in the 40s and even in the 50s after the Second World War. A lot of the arguments being used against Muslims are very similar. Someone has actually done a, a, a verbal a, 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 an analysis of what was written about the Jews and what is being written about the Muslims. Almost exactly the same. And yet, does anyone care? No, well, we do. But by and large, this is completely ignored because the media is uh, a part of it. So that is the situation that we confront, and of course, you know, we, we, we fight it back. But the Palestinians have to understand, and I think increasingly they do, that the state they visualized is impossible. So the only hope, I can't see any other way out, uh, is a solution which many staunch Israeli anti-Zionists from the Matzpan group and others have defended for a long time. Uh, and many of them educated me in this whole idea about 40 years ago that the only viable long-term solution is a single Israeli-Palestinian state with equal rights for Jews, Muslims, Christians, Palestinians, Druids, whatever. Uh, so, Norman, I'm going to ask you to respond to Tariq. There's sort of two big points here. 
I'm going to ask Norman to respond to the first point that Tariq raises about there really is no two-state solution left to be had, and it's now a one-state issue. And then I'm going to ask Norman to respond on the BDS question, the whole issue of sanctions. I hope that Paul won't be offended, but I feel like the one-state, two-state has been argued to the point of tedium, and I want to make some other remarks, and we have time. I'll come back to that, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, I want to begin with the question that Paul, or the scenario, or the interview that Paul had in Lebanon with this young woman who wanted to strang strangle uh, the Israeli children, young Israeli ch uh, Palestinian child who wanted to strangle the Israeli children. And it conjures up an image of this uh, seething anger and brutality on both sides and how the conflict has corrupted both sides. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of um, uh, trying to think of the right word. It, it, it creates a picture which is highly distorted and inaccurate. Uh, I find, and I don't say this in any kind of malice, I've past the age in my life where I have to vent my anger, inner anger or malice towards other people. I try to be as objective as I can when it comes to the politics. So I'm not saying it in malice, but I don't think there is a rational basis for this Israeli seething anger at Palestinians. If you look at what actually happens during these conflicts, say, between Israel and Gaza, the balance sheet is so wildly imbalanced that the notion that both sides suffer or both sides have comparable grievances is simply preposterous. And during Operation Protective Edge, one one Israeli house was destroyed. 19,000 Palestinian homes were destroyed. One Israeli child was killed. 550 Palestinian children were killed. 20,000 tons, 20,000 tons of explosives were dropped on Gaza. At the outside, at the outside, maybe 40 tons were dropped in Israel from these Gaza fireworks. There was no war. There was some fighting inside Gaza which unprecedentedly it cost the lives of 67 Israeli soldiers. That was unusual, mostly because of the effectiveness of the tunnel system they had created. But that aside, you take a place like Shujaya, 90,000 people crammed into this tiny area. Israel dropped more than 100 one-ton bombs more than 100 
ton bombs on Shujaya. How can anyone in his or her right mind compare that remotely to what happens in Israel? I'll admit, before I say it, there's an element of hyperbole. I'll admit there's an element of exaggeration. <clears throat> However, it's not so wildly exaggerated to say that I face more danger on the boardwalk of Coney Island on July 4th than 99% of Israelis face during these wars with Gaza. Those are fireworks. They are not rockets. They are not missiles. As a matter of fact, I met a Gazan who told me, in Gaza, they call them belly dancers because they swivel when they go up into the air. Everybody knows they are a joke. Now, let me now turn to the question of what's possible, what can be done about an appalling situation. There have been two, or I should say, in the history of the Palestinian struggle, there have been basically three strategies that have been tried. One, everybody's familiar with the diplomacy, which begins technically in 1993 with the Oslo Agreement. There's no point in squandering precious time trying to demonstrate to you that it's failed. It manifestly has failed. When the Oslo Agreement was signed, there were about 250,000 illegal Jewish settlers in the occupied Palestinian territories. Now there are about 600,000. If you judge an agreement not by its verbal claims, but by its actual outcomes, Oslo was not a peace process, it was an annexation process. The goal was to annex the most desirable parts of the West Bank, and that process unfolded with a certain kind of methodicalness over the past 20, 25 years. Diplomacy is a dead end. The other strategy practiced right now has been the armed struggle, the armed resistance of Hamas. Now, under international law, Hamas, the Palestinians, nothing in international law debars them from using armed force to end the occupation. That is, let's put it, I won't use the technical language because I'm on tape and then people are going to get, try to get to me. Nothing under international law debars them from using armed force to end the occupation. For me, that's not an important question. Legally, they have the right. Morally, in my opinion, they have the right. But then there's the political question. The political question is very simple. Does it work? Is it working? Is it a viable strategy? So let's set aside the legal question where I think Palestinians have the right. The moral question, I think they have the right. But then let's look at the political question. Does it work? Does it have the potential of working? You judge for yourself. Since 2008-9, since Operation uh, uh, Cast Lead, there have been three 
Israeli operations, really massacres, though the second one wasn't quite in the same level. Operation Cast Lead, Operation Pillar of Defense in November 2012, and then Operation Protective Edge. Each time Hamas went to battle with Israel, each time they set the same goal, always the same, to end the blockade of Gaza. That was the goal. We want to end the blockade of Gaza. Each time at the end, there was some sort of promise or commitment to ending the blockade. We're now in 2016, two years after Protective Edge. Was the blockade lifted? It's not working. The strategy doesn't work. There's a kind of mutual, a mutual uh, game by both sides in pretending that there's such thing as armed resistance. So Hamas says, look, our rockets work. The Israelis are so afraid of them. So they get to say armed resistance is working. Then the Israelis say, they're attacking us with rockets. What do you expect us to do? Or as Mr. Obama likes to say, that they have the right to defend themselves. It was my two daughters. What would I expect, you know? Stupefying narcissist. Um, so, so both sides, both sides have a stake in pretending this thing called armed resistance works. It does not. And then you have to ask yourself, what's left? And there is, in the history of the Palestinian movement, there is the third option which was remarkably successful. And that was the mass nonviolent resistance of the first intifada. Most people are much too young to, uh, here to remember, but it was a remarkably successful mass uprising which hurt Israel at two fundamental levels. Number one, disaster for Israel in terms of public relations kids with stones, and then Defense Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin issues an order. It was called a force, might, and beatings. And then the Israeli army went around and systematically broke the bones of Palestinian children. That didn't do great on, uh, you know, on the news internationally. It was a disaster for Israel, for those who remember. And secondly, it was a disaster for Israel because huge numbers of Israelis had to be called up reservists half a million at a time in order to put down the uprising. The nonviolence resistance in general as a tactic, it has real possibilities. The question is now what to do? In my opinion, there is a real possibility now. One of the paradoxes of the Israel-Palestine conflict is objectively, objectively, in fact, things have never looked better aside from the fact that other parts of the Arab world are now getting a huge amount of attention, which ne never before happened. Syria, Iraq, I don't have to go through it with you. And that steals, 
the uh, camera from the Palestinians. But aside from that development, which I recognize is not, is not trivial, it's never been better. Objectively, a huge amount of public opinion now is ready to put pressure on Israel. An even huger amount of public opinion in Europe is now ready to put pressure on Israel. The challenge in politics, I know Tarek doesn't like him, and I don't care. The challenge in politics is what Gandhi always said is, it's how you get, how you pour, how do you get people to act? How do you get people to act on what they already know is wrong? Politics is not about, as people in my generation used to say, and probably Tariq still says, it's not about trying to raise people's consciousness. Because everybody knows a thousand things are already wrong. The question is how to get them to act on what they already know is wrong. And that was the genius of the Bernie Sanders campaign. He didn't try to raise anybody's consciousness. He just started to say things that everybody's been thinking every minute of every day. I can't pay my loans. I can't find a job. I can't move out of my parents' home. I can't, I can't, I can't. And all of a sudden, Bernie started to say what people already knew was wrong. That's the challenge. How to get them to act on what they already know is wrong. And there is a real possibility here. The way you get people to act, Gandhi said, is you engage in mass nonviolent resistance, and you may think it sounds, doesn't sound like a profound revolutionary text. He says you have to be willing to get your bones broken to evoke people's pity and sympathy. That's how you get people to act. Now, it may not sound so profound, but for those of you who lived during the civil rights movement, what got people to act? When they saw uh, dogs, yeah, yeah, the dogs on the kids, when they saw people, the water cannons on the kids, when you saw uh, some volunteers getting killed, when you saw Emmett Till and you saw what happened to his face, that's what gets people to act. People think Gandhi's, Gandhi's uh, uh, non-violence was, you know, about, I don't know, own and... Uh, if you planning to go to San Francisco, make sure to have a flower in your hair. No, that wasn't Gandhi. If you read Gandhi, he says, if you want to be serious, you've got to get your bones broken. You've got to get your skull cracked. You've got to get yourself killed. That's what he said nonviolence is about. If you read him, the real Gandhi, it's, a kind of, it's almost a kind of cult of death. Uh, but it's not like he's worshipping death. He's kind of realistic about what gets people to act. What gets people to move, to go from knowing something is wrong to actually doing something about it? Where are we at now? As I said, there have been major changes in public opinion. And then you have to find the right target. I know Tarek, his innards are probably writhing now. But uh, Gandhi was very shrewd with the salt march because he picked a target that affected everyone in Indian society, but hurt the poor the most. 
It was a very clever target. It affected everyone, the salt tax, but of course it hurt the poor the most. What do we have now? There is something. It's the blockade of Gaza. It's a realistic goal. It is a realistic goal, I'll say it 10,000 times, and I am not Pollyannish. It's a realistic goal to end the blockade. Bernie Sanders, he made a point during his major interview, the blockade has to be lifted. That means we have Bernie on our side, and that's not trivial. That means a large number of people, more than anyone in his human memory could possibly imagine, more than the anti-war movement. That's a fact. If you have Bernie saying the blockade has to be lifted. Two days ago, Haaretz newspaper, I was surprised, had ran an editorial, the blockade has to be lifted. It said, all this talk about we need it for security reasons, that's BS. The uh, Haaretz said it, of course, didn't say BS. Uh, <laughs> uh, then the UN commission, the UN uh, inquiry in Gaza, horrible, horrible, horrible. Somehow somebody sneaked in the line. Mary McGowan Davis, she must have been snoozing. Someone sneaked in the line. It said the blockade of Gaza has to be lifted immediately and unconditionally. It was unbelievable. It didn't say it has to be lifted conditional on no arms being smuggled into Gaza. It didn't say it had to be lifted conditional on Hamas not using the cement to build tunnels. It said immediately and unconditionally. There is a realistic prospect if we do things right to lift to at least in the short term end the blockade of Gaza. That's what I think the aim should be June 5th 2017, the half century of the occupation. It began 50 years ago, June 5th. It means we have one year to organize. I think it's a realistic goal, except for one thing. I said, all the objective factors are there. The problem is the subjective factor. Because we can't, and frankly, I don't know, I have mixed feelings. We shouldn't want to do it from here. It has to start there. Tariq says that South Africa was liberated because of the Cubans at Quito Carnaval. How is it pronounced? Quito Carnaval. Uh, I think it was first and foremost, I'm not going to downplay the role the Cubans played, but first and foremost, there was a mass movement in South Africa. In the absence of a mass movement, it's simply not realistic that you can, so to speak, liberate Palestine from the outside. And I don't even think it's very desirable to liberate from the outside, because if you do it from the outside, tomorrow the people will be just as powerless and a band of crooks will take over. Uh, of course, I have mixed feelings because it's a brutal blockade. And getting that lifted anyway, you know, has to be done. So the problem is the people of Gaza. People of Gaza are hopeless. And the leadership, I, I, I know Hamas was never given a chance. I know from the day they won those parliamentary elections, the screws started being turned. Then the CIA was organizing the coup uh, in 2007. I know all the details. And I recognize those details. But the fact of the matter is, 
Hamas now is terrible. It's very repressive, and it's just looking out for itself. It's, you know, in the history of all political movements, you have that mentality where you think that the survival of the struggle is synonymous with the survival of your group, uh, and then you start just defending your group. Uh, I'm not going to bring it up here because now Tarek will get me again, but that's sort of what happened with the Bolsheviks, where they began to think survival of the Bolsheviks was survival of the revolution, and the two were synonymous. And the same thing has now happened with Hamas. I talk a lot to the people in Gaza over Skype and things like that, and the level of despair is just, it's very hard to correct. But if we could show them that we're ready to do our all, in my opinion, if we're ready to do our all, if they're ready to do their all, then there's a realistic prospect for ending the blockade of Gaza. And I think it's a worthy goal. I won't get uh, involved in an argument with Norm on Gandhi at this particular <laughs> forum. <laughs> uh, I, I must say my views on Gandhi coming from that subcontinent uh, are very different from the idealized picture uh, which has been developed of him, not just by Norm, but uh, by uh, Western society as a whole. Um, interestingly enough, this I can't resist. Um, I can't resist uh, telling you this. <laughs> this no. is becoming a Marx Brothers routine. And Marx is appropriate here. That uh, in uh, 1938, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee had a short list of people in front of it. And they couldn't decide whether to give the Nobel Peace Prize to Mahatma Gandhi, who, whatever my disagreements, certainly deserved it. <coughs> they couldn't decide whether to give it to Mahatma Gandhi or Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Which shows how deep Western dilemmas go. <laughs> But anyway, uh, I agree. On, uh, you know, I agree on Gaza, of course. Uh, I, I would just say to Norman that what he's described, of course, another political theorist of a current he now doesn't like the Bolsheviks, also once asserted that the chain breaks at its weakest link, and quoting Lenin's words, one can also reach the same conclusion that the weakest link in the chain of oppression in Israel-Palestine today is without doubt Gaza. And one should concentrate efforts, all possible efforts, to try and break the uh, uh, blockade. I'm completely in favor of that, have supported all the ships that have uh, uh, gone and all the different campaigns uh, that have been involved, but that would be a huge leap forward and would possibly revitalize the mass movement in the 
rest of the region because it's true I took it for granted that the Cubans inflicting a military defeat on this vaunted you know white South African army uh, was a huge blow to them and Nelson Mandela the first country he visited after he was released was Cuba he said we owed them a blood debt because without that defeat uh, we might have been stuck for some time to come. But I, it goes without granted. There's a huge mass movement in South Africa which varied, it was crushed, it rose again. You had new mass movements in Soweto and the townships. Uh, you then had armed struggle, strikes, guerrilla actions, which weren't so successful, by the way, even in South Africa. Uh, and then the uh, Cuban triumph, and then uh, we know the history. But the point I was going to make was that even, <clears throat> even with the blockade on Gaza being lifted, which would create the basis for a new, different type of mass movement of the Palestinians and their few allies in that uh, region, we still have to have some overall plan which will not be fulfilled today or tomorrow or the day after. And that is where the question of what are your aims comes in, because if you have no plan, uh, if, if the two-state solution is ended, you have to think, however unrealistic it might appear, at least pose the question of something else. And I think large parts of the world understand this now. Instinctively, it's true that in Europe, public opinion now, I mean, there have been a number of polls when they asked, actually asked, which do you think is the most dangerous state in the world? A fairly large proportion of Europeans, especially the young, reply, Israel. Why? Because they know Israel is a nuclear state. They know it's carrying out quite a brutal occupation. They know that the United States backs it. They fear, because that there could be an accidental nuclear war. Who knows what uh, as a war of last resort. So there is this growing feeling which of course the elitist politicians in Europe don't represent and don't reflect. But some big shift and some big movement within the region itself could spark off real mass struggles or movements to put huge pressure on the governments of Europe and, I hope, North America. I mean, the thing about Bernie Sanders' campaign, which I should say, is that in all my memory of American politics, my own memories and experiences, I have not seen a campaign like this. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong. That a campaign to become the candidate of a mainstream party virtually launches a huge popular movement and a popular political movement, not a single issue movement in this country. Now I know at the left forum there are many critics of Bernie and fine, that's normal. But it's not even a question of his person actually in some ways. Why couldn't anyone else have triggered such a movement off? Precisely because of he's different from the others. People feel that it was the same with Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. And when people were asked, but how can you like him? Polster said, but why do you like him? The reply came, because he's different from the politicians. And the politicians are quite a hated subgrouping now, globally. 
but especially in Europe. And the fact that I think Sanders is the first serious senior politician of a political party who did not go to APAC, that does mark a small breakthrough, and we should be grateful. Because that breaks... It does just break, it breaks the hold this organization has over the political structures. I mean, no other country, this is an imperial power, the most powerful country in the world, and after 9-11, both the Senate and the House voted a blank check, a blank check to Israel, whatever you do, we will support you. Whatever you do, you can wipe out the entire Palestinian nation and we will support you. Unheard of. (coughs) Unheard of. So, as time proceeds and as the decades pass by, it would be great to mark the 50th anniversary of the occupation, being able to celebrate something, and the lifting of the siege of Gaza, the sanctions on Gaza, the victimization of Gaza would be a huge step forward. So on that I'm in total agreement. It's not enough, of course, but it could be the pattern and the the launch pad for something much, much bigger in the region. Because what is clear is that there's going to be no help from any other Arab state. Not that that, there was too much even before this, but at least during the days of Nasser and Arab nationalism, they tried, they gave them refuge, they trained them, they gave them weapons, they helped. Uh, That's all gone now with the Saudi Arabians effectively on the same line as the Israeli government. Think about that. The most hardened faction within Islam, the Wahhabis, literalists, Islamic literalists, effectively on exactly the same line as Israel because of factional disputes against their rivals within Islam and because they are now fearful that something might happen inside their own country. So it's a very strange situation which releases the Palestinian movement in many ways from the Saudis and from these uh, uh, other countries which helps a mass movement if it's politically and psychologically independent of some extremely unpleasant regimes in that region. The question was, why not, instead of the blockade, focus on the settlements Um, The answer is a little bit complicated, not complicated, but you have to think it through. The blockade, the the settlements, there is a strong argument. They are illegal under international law. That's the opinion of the International Court of Justice, all the major human rights organizations, and so forth. So there's a solid phalanx of mainstream public opinion Uh, including, I should also add, the UN Security Council, which has declared the settlements illegal. The main manifestation of the settlements right now, the main manifestation is the wall 
that Israel has been building uh, in the occupied West Bank. It consumes about 10% of the West Bank, including the critical water resources and some of the best land in the West Bank. The International Court of Justice ruled in July 2004. It said, number one, the wall is illegal. Number two, the wall has to be dismantled. Israel has to dismantle the wall. And number three, if Israel doesn't dismantle the wall, then there's an obligation on the part of the international community to see that the wall is dismantled. That makes it a very tempting target, the wall. The problem is, in the case of the West Bank, between Israel and the Palestinians, there's both the wall and the Palestinian Authority. There is a political wall and there's a physical wall. At this point, I see no evidence in the occupied West Bank of any kind of movement that would have sufficient potential and power uh, to break through both the political wall of the Palestinian Authority and the physical wall uh, that has been created. Though again, objectively, there's a real possibility there. Because when you evaluate these things, when you try to assess what's possible and what's not possible, in my opinion, the most important thing to look at is where is public opinion? Where is progressive public opinion? Sometimes I use the expression, what is the political horizon of progressive public opinion? If you want to know the political horizon of progressive public opinion, you look at the mainstream human rights organizations. What have they said? You look at the International Court of Justice. What, it hit, what has it said? You look at the UN General Assembly. What has it said? Those are fairly decent indicators of where the political horizon of public opinion is. And there you have a good case for targeting the wall, but you also have a good case for targeting the blockade because um, all the mainstream human rights organizations have declared that the blockade is illegal because it's a form of collective punishment. Uh, the whole of, as I said, now reaches even to Bernie Sanders, who says the blockade has to be lifted. Uh, the difference is Hamas itself wants to lift the blockade. There is, they're not doing much about it, and I think their strategy is wrong-headed, but at least the political leadership is committed to it. In the West Bank, there's no political leadership that's even formally co committed to bringing down the wall. Now, having said that, and trying to fully answer your question, there's a kind of paradox in the BDS movement between what they actually do and what their platform says. There's a chasm a chasm may be a strong word, let's just call it a distance that separates the two. If you look at the actual BDS resolutions, say on college campuses, I like to do homework even when Paul told me I don't have to prepare for this, I still have this need to prepare 
it goes back to when I was in grade school, I was a nerd, uh, always had to prepare. And last night, I did take the trouble to go through all the BDS victories for the year 2015, which are listed on their website. And then I proceeded to go to each school which passed a resolution, and the resolution calling for divestment in virtually every single case for the year 2015, there were eight victories, I think, in every single case, it targeted the settlements. In fact, in a couple of cases, it explicitly said in the resolution that was passed, we are not BDS. We have nothing to do with BDS because they recognize the platform itself. It may be, and in my opinion, it is legally correct. Implementation of the right of return of the Palestinian refugees, full citizenship rights of Palestinians living in Israel, and ending the occupation. That is legally correct. But I said earlier, politics is not just about what's legally right. You have to look at where public opinion is. And BDS activists who are committed, conscientious, give it their all, and are really impressive. The victories have been impressive. But they recognize the limits of public opinion. You can't get a resolution passed if you start calling for full implementation of the right of return. They focus on the settlements. We mentioned earlier, and I'm glad to hear, that Tarek and I agree on the spectacular, spectacular achievement of the Bernie Sanders campaign. It had to be spectacular, because last night I gave my fourth contribution. <laughs> now, Anyone who knows me, that's more than pulling teeth. <laughs> the moment I read Bernie's campaign, it's down to $5.8 million. He needs money. I want him to win California. I'd also like to see Paul Krugman drop dead, but we'll leave that as that's unrelated, but if somebody will if somebody puts something on the website to contribute to, I'll give to that too. That will be my fifth contribution. Uh, Bernie Sanders, he's been terrific, a real inspiration. Well, I'll say two things, one about him and one about us. One of the reasons he's able to do what he's done it's because for 40 years, he tried to stake out a place in the mainstream spectrum. He didn't go over the top or over the cliff. And so he, he staked out that place, staked out that place. He always watched which ways the winds were blowing, which you have to do in politics. 
He waited, he prepared 40 years for this moment. No, he did. He did. I mean, it's no joke. If you listen to like the uh, former governor of Vermont, uh, Cunin, I can't remember, Madeline Cunin? She said, oh yeah, Bernie. He's been saying the seven, same thing since the 70s. He says it again and again. Yes, he did say the same thing, but he never went over. He never went over. And now it's the same message to us. If you listen to what he says, Bernie, he always starts out. I've read every one of his statements. Not that there are that many, but I've read them. Uh, no, they're not actually all the same, but they're pretty close. They're pretty close, I'll agree. He always starts out by saying, you have to recognize Israel. You have to recognize Israel. Once you recognize Israel, we can talk. But if you don't recognize Israel, conversation over. Now, do you want to win over Bernie and his followers? Do you want to have a conversation with them? That's a step. Does a BDS platform do that? No, it explicitly doesn't. Do, explicitly does not do that. And then you have a question, now what do you want to do? You want to hug your principles, or you want to play this game they call it constructive ambiguity. I've never understood the meaning of that expression, but okay. Or are you going to do what international law requires of you to do? Because Israel is a state, under the state system, it is a legitimate state. That's the law. If you want to appeal to the law and say the blockade is illegal under international law because it's collective punishment, if you want to appeal to the law and say the settlements are illegal because under Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, an occupying power can transfer its population to occupied land, if you want to appeal to the law and appeal to the law, then the law is Israel's estate. So as a matter of not just consistency, though I do believe in politics, consistency has its place, which is another reason why Bernie has such a following. He's not a two-faced hypocrite. He's not duplicitous. But even as a political matter, you can't talk to Bernie unless you focus, unless you recognize Israel. That's just a prerequisite for having a conversation. Now, I was kind of surprised. I don't believe it, actually. We're close to time. So yeah, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say quickly, I read yesterday that uh, it seems a rumor is now spreading <clears throat> that Bernie's going to make the Israel issue one of the issues he's going to fight for at the Democratic National Convention, that you're going to have to take a more even-handed stance. It's a great opportunity for us. Uh, apparently, one of the issues Bernie's going to fight for at the July convention is that the Democratic National uh, Platform is going to have to take a more even-handed stance on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's a great opportunity for us. Uh, look, I don't live in the United States. I observe it from afar. I come here regularly, but not that often. And so I, I, I tend to see the, some of these issues 
not from the vantage point of someone who lives in the United States, but someone who lives in Britain, but travels to the Middle East and other continents regularly too. And here I have to say that the BDS campaign, despite Norman's uh, criticisms, we are not all wrong. I think some of the attacks on Norman have been completely unjustified. It's a perfectly legitimate debate. But I think that the BDS movement is the first global mass movement on the question of bringing Israel to heel and putting it in the court of international public opinion. And on that level, one cannot deny its effect. It's been very effective. And the, con <clears throat> and the country where it's had the largest impact is South Africa where huge numbers of delegations have gone and come back shocked by what they've seen and said don't even compare these Palestinian uh, statelets to Bantustans. The Bantustans actually had more power than these Palestinian states do on the West Bank or on Gaza. So I think we just that is something that has to be recognized. And public opinion is a mobile thing. Today, public opinion is very worked up. There's no doubt about Gaza and the siege of Gaza, but it wasn't always thus. It has happened recently, and partially because of the campaigning that has gone around and because people have observed with their own eyes Israeli brutalities against the people of Gaza. So public opinion can change on other issues as well if properly handled. And I have seen the BDS activists in South America and elsewhere work very actively and very well in countries like Chile, even in Colombia, in the Bolivarian countries, obviously, but there they were backed by the state, even in countries where they are not backed by the state, working extremely effectively to try and isolate Israel internationally at a time when Israel is waging an offensive to become accepted as a normal state in a normal country. And here the country in Europe that has gone the farthest, even worse than the United States, is the Syriza government in Greece, which has recognized Jerusalem as the international capital of Israel, which even the United States has not done and refuses to do. Syriza has done it. And the links between the Syriza government and the Netanyahu government are now very close, Netanyahu government, very close uh, uh, indeed. So this is a constant battle by the Israelis themselves for recognition of Israel as the state that it is. And this recognition, not the de facto, even the de jure recognition of Israel as a state, but acceptance of Israel as an occupying state in Palestine, that is what is at the heart of the debate. And that is the dispute. Who can question the existence of Israel? Who can challenge the existence of Israel? A nuclear country, the sixth most powerful army in the world, protected by the United States of America, which has threatened that anyone who tries to damage Israel will be blown off the face of this earth. And Hillary Clinton threatened to do that to the Iranians if they dared acquire nuclear weapons. I mean, just think and look at the double standards. So 
when the question of Israel is raised, no one, even if they say it, they know they don't mean Israel and is the Jewish population of Israel is safe and it is secure. The people who aren't safe and secure are the Palestinians. Are the Palestinian refugees, are the Palestinians in the occupied lands, and it is for them that the BDS campaign, with all its weaknesses, which campaign doesn't have weaknesses, has been extremely effective, and that is why I think it should be supported. And increasingly, as the debates carry on, and they do carry on, that's why they're trying to shut them down. People who organize these debates, even on university campuses on Britain, are told, no, you can't have a conference on this subject. Why it threatens our security. We do, can't afford it. All these things are now coming in. Local councils who want to participate in the sanctions campaign are told it's illegal by the British government. You can't do it. In France, the Jewish Defense League can organize a demonstration through the streets of Paris. The BDS movement is not allowed to do so. And this is why, apart from everything else, it has become a central issue of democratic rights and civil liberties inside Europe itself, this campaign and this movement. Which is why, whatever disagreements you have, I would urge everyone to support it. One doesn't have to agree with every single dot and comma in it, because the work it is effectively doing is good, and it is also uniting many, many Jewish activists uh, who are not Zionists, anti-Zionist Jewish activists, and Palestinians, and people who are neither, precisely because they see it as part of a peaceful campaign. When there was an armed struggle being waged, as Norman has pointed out, by the Palestinians, of course, they were attacked as terrorists, they were attacked as violent, they don't do this, we can't talk to you until you stop using violence, etc. When a, peace, a peaceful, non-violent campaign, which is what BDS has organized, exactly the same, you're anti-Semites, you're not allowed to do this, you want to question the integrity of Israel? The people who are questioning the integrity of Israel are the Zionist leaders of that country. They're the ones who have brought Israel to this pass. It's not been the Palestinians. <clears throat> and every time, I remember a few years ago, I was at the Jewish, speaking at the Jewish Book Fair in London, with two leading Zionists on either side of me, Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian and David Badir, quite very decent comic uh, and uh, a very sweet guy apart from his Zionism. And he said, uh, I said to them, since the second Intifada, the Israeli government has decreed through its foreign ministries that all Israeli embassies are to step up the pro propaganda, saying that anyone who opposes Israel is an anti-Semite. They didn't do this before, but they've done it since the Second Intifada. It's part of Israeli policy. And I said to this audience, <clears throat> the problem is this, that people of my generation know what anti-Semitism means 
and knows how deep its effects are and why it should be opposed. But if you say this to kids who are active in the movements against Israeli occupation today, they're not as affected as we are. And if you carry on like this, the kids will reply, we're going to carry on doing what, you're, what we are doing. If you want to call us anti-Semites, so be it. And unfortunately, some of them are saying it. We don't care a damn what you call us. You know, it doesn't affect us anymore. They're saying it in France. They're saying it in parts of Britain. They're saying it in other parts of Europe. They're certainly saying it elsewhere. So it's against all this that movements like BDS, by raising deeper, more central issues, are, I think, extremely important. Well, we have like about seven minutes. Um, uh, where is a... I, I was just wondering, uh, clearly Yao alone did not resign because of the crocodile tears he was crying. So I'm wondering why you think the two of them resigned. Is it more like a um, parliamentary thing where people resign when they don't have the majority support? Or is it more like, I don't want to have international responsibility for the ethnic cleansing that I see coming, for some other reason? Um, I think this might also be the last one. <clears throat> my answer there would be completely speculative. Uh, my answer to that question would be completely speculative. I'm not really sure what was his motive in resigning at this particular moment. What do you think the implications of it are? The implications of it, I would say, and I'm not trying to be glib about it, I did spend the morning trying to think it through. I don't think the implications are significant for the following reason. If you look at the Israeli, and what I'm saying significant regarding Palestinians and the occupied Palestinian territories, if you look at the various operations, massacres Israel has com committed, um, the determining factor has typically been external and not internal in terms of the amount of death and destruction it inflicts. So let's just take the last two operations as an example. Operation Pillar of Defense in November 2012, it ended very quickly. It ended within a week. Israel killed about 100 Palestinian civilians during protective edge. I think, rough, excuse me, during pillar of defense. Why did it end very quickly? Well, the answer was pretty clear. Because there were two major regional powers, Egypt and Turkey, which at that time were taking a very prominent role, saying you can't do again to Gaza what you did during Operation, uh, uh, Operation Cast Lead in 2008-9. So Turkey and Egypt they drew a red line at a ground invasion. You're not going to do another ground invasion like you did in 2008-9. Uh, without a ground invasion, uh, Netanyahu couldn't stop the rocket, uh, so-called rocket, attacks on Israel, and so he put an end to it after about a week. Protective Edge was actually quite interesting what happened. First of all, as Tarek uh, alluded to, Protective Edge being July, August 2014. As Tarek alluded to, there was a fundamental change in the regional balance of power. 
Egypt was now headed by Sisi and had, uh, had created this whole hysteria against Palestinians in, in general and Hamas in particular. So Sisi supported the Israeli uh, massacre in Gaza during Protective Edge. Saudi Arabia was now openly aligned with Israel. It was also hoping for Hamas's defeat. The Arab League only met once. The Arab League met only once during Operation Protective Edge. And when it met, it came out in support of Israel. So Gaza was alone. And the operation lasted 51 days, which was not sure. Cast lead lasted 22 days. This was more than doubled. The destruction was about one-third more. The interesting question is, why did it end? And the reason it ended, it's, it's useful for politics to try to understand these things. So Israel's carrying on an annihilatory uh, destruction of Gaza during Protective Edge. They targeted one UN shelter uh, giving safety to children, uh, uh, civilians. There were also men, I think, in them. Civilians, then a second, then a third, then a fourth, then a fifth. By the fifth one, the pressure is building up in the UN system. It's like Banky Moon, you comatose puppet of the United States. When are you going to say so? something? Finally, the fifth attack, he says something. But the Israelis, you can't stop them. My only strong disagreement with Tarek this afternoon is when he talked about Israelis and shame in the same sentence. No, <laughs> that doesn't happen. As you know, the two words they don't know are excuse me if you. There's a long joke about that, which time doesn't allow me to go through. Um, in any case, so now Ban Ki-moon, they attacked the sixth shelter. And this was on yeah, August, yeah, this was on August 3rd. On August 3rd, they attack another shelter, and now Ban Ki-moon sort of, he kind of has to explode, I go, even though Ban Ki-moon explode is also very hard to put in the same sentence. Um, if you can imagine a corpse exploding, well, that was Ban Ki-moon. He finally said some very harsh words. That was around 7 a.m. Around 12, Obama. Now they're isolated because their own puppet is denouncing Israel. Finally, Obama or his administration, it says what Israel did was shocking and horrible, attacking the shelter. And then within an hour, Netanyahu says, ground invasion over. Now it's true, that was August 3rd and it lasted through August 26th because then there was the whole negotiating phase. But it wasn't who was in charge in Israel. It was the pressure that was exerted from the outside. In 2008, excuse me, in 2012, it was Turkey and Egypt which transmitted the message to Obama, we're not going to let them pull off another uh, cast lead. And then in 2014, it was the pressure that built up in the UN system until it affected Ban Ki-moon and then it affected um, uh, uh, Obama, the Obama administration. So it really didn't make much of a difference who was the head of state. It was the external powers that were finally brought to bear.
So I don't think it's going to make much of a difference if Avigdor Lieberman is the defense minister. It's really what happens outside that will set real or not real limits on how they carry on. I think we're there. We're at the, we're, there's another session coming soon. I know we're being pointed, but we're actually at time now, and I've been told I got a hit time. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you to our guests.